I'm not a businessman. I'm a businessman. Jay-Z from his legendary Diamonds from Sierra Leone guest verse. Obviously, he's talking about himself, but it's also very applicable to the running world. You see, oftentimes, track athletes have a very specific skill set that allows them to perform on a level rarely reached by mankind, and those skill sets can earn them and others a living. But at the same time, often they aren't quite as well equipped in the departments of negotiating appearance money, making sure they have the correct visas in time, so on, etc. That's why there's people like Chris McCashew. He's a managing partner in Sprint Management, a company that looks after the likes of Chris Winters, Taylor Milne, and CPT, just to name a very small few. He'll be on the show to shed some light on the off-track situations surrounding the upcoming World Championships in Beijing, including the Men's 1500, Nick Simmons, and more. You definitely do not want to miss that. Also, world record beer miler Lewis Kent will be joining us later in the show to talk about his big race at the Beer Mile World Classic. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to The Terminal Mile, a Tracky Radio production. You're listening to The Terminal Mile, heard worldwide at tracky.ca, as well as Stitcher, iTunes, and TuneIn. The build-up to this year's World Championship has been a very exciting one. With Canada arguably fielding one of its strongest teams yet, it's easy to see why there seems to be so much buzz surrounding this year's pinnacle track and field event. Now, interestingly enough, what's been happening on the track has almost been eclipsed by events happening off the track, with controversy surrounding our national team selection process, vague contracts south of the border, and the ever-present dark cloud of doping. Chris McCashew is a managing partner at Sprint Management, a firm that represents athletes like Chuck P.T., Chris Winter, Sarah Wells, Gavin Smelly, as well as branching out into other sports representing soccer players, MMA fighters, and bobslayers alike. And he joins us to talk about the World Championships and its build-up. You can find him on Twitter at Sprint underscore MGMT and Sprint Management's website at SprintManagement.ca. Welcome to the show, Chris. Hey, thanks for having me. Now let's start with an issue that's very close to you. It seems that there's a big uproar surrounding the men's 1500. Now, with no one hitting the qualifying time until after the Athletics Canada deadline, when your client, Chuck BT, and middle distance legend, Nathan Brennan, both hit amazing times in Europe. While it seemed cut and dried, no one goes to the Worlds without a qualifier before July 5th, in a turn of events, Athletics Canada allowed those with an invite and a ranking in the top half of entries to go to this year's Worlds. Realistically, did you see Athletics Canada bending their own rules to let rising stars like CPT go to Beijing, given he's had such an amazing July? You know what's interesting with, with, with Charles, and we had this discussion prior to him running in Monaco, I said, look, you're in Monaco, it's it's known as the best 1,500-meter field in the world. You could run, like he did, 334 and finish close to dead last. You know, the winner was at 327. So you look at the numbers. I said, just go out there and run like an Olympic final, and, and let's just see what happens. If you get your standard, fantastic. If you don't, well, at least you know you, you tried. And he went out there and ran his race, and he got his time. And I think Nate did the same thing in Houston the day after, and Jeremy Ray was right there as well. Um the deadline AC had said initially, I mean, they hadn't qualified based on time because they didn't meet it. However, the IAAF had a longer window in place and also granted um, entries to people in the top half of the rankings, which both Nate and Chuck fell into. So at no point we were really worried, concerned about Charles not racing. It was more of a more of a question of when we were going to get the news from IAAF um, down to AC and then onwards to Charles and myself to say, hey, you've been... Uh, 
you've made the world championship team. Is this something you'd like to do? And obviously the answer came pretty quickly. Yes, we're coming. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned Jeremy Ray. Uh, on a blog of his, he speculated that he assumed that it was due to public outcry that ended up swaying the AC uh, towards letting Brennan and CPT go to Worlds and uh, for them recognizing that invite as well. From your perspective, how true do you think that is? I wouldn't say it didn't influence it. Um, so at the end of the day, I think, and I, I'm not 100% sure on this, but I think the member federations such as Athletics Canada could have not allowed the athletes to compete, even though they were given the uh, the invite from uh, from the IAAF. However, Athletics Canada, they've always done the best things for their athletes, and they both know Nate's capabilities at the you know on the big scene. He might not be fit for what for the for he may not have won the national championships like everyone expected. But when it pushed up to shove, Nate's always there on, on, on the big races. And Charles, very similar. He showed up at Nationals. He's ready to go. It just it wasn't his day. And then two weeks later, all of a sudden, you see him pop in times over in Monaco. So um, I, I think a little bit of the social media traction might have helped. But at the end of the day, I, I think the head coach as well as the CEO and everyone involved in the decision saw the opportunity and said, hey, we can't leave these guys at home. They're both potential finalists. So, um, yeah, it could have helped a little bit. But... And the day, I think everyone kind of knew what was going to happen. You know, as someone who's so close to many of these uh, top athletes, how important is experience at a big meet like Worlds to an athlete's development? I mean, I'm thinking of Chuck here, and uh, you know, yeah. he's he's still just starting out, uh, and you know, I see him going to a lot of international meets like this. You know, is it is it going to be a big deal that he goes to this Worlds? Oh, I, I think I think it's a huge part of his planning towards Rio. Um, and that's what we were talking about. I said, look, if worlds don't work out, at least you've had a few diamonds where you can experience a fast race. So you know what it feels like to be with the, the, the Kip Rocks and these kind of guys um, where many people don't have that chance. Um, worlds kind of serve as a stepping stone towards towards Olympics, much like Pan Am serves as a stepping stone towards towards worlds this summer. I mean, Chuck, what is he, bronze there, Nate a second place. Yeah, it showed that they're fit. But without smaller events like that, doesn't prepare you mentally or psychologically for what's ahead at the, at the major championships. Okay, so south of the border, Nick Simmons, he's always creating yeah. headlines. Uh, and he raised a lot of eyebrows when he refused to sign a contract that would see him only wearing Nike, uh, the competitor of his sponsor, Brooks, on his trip to right. Beijing. Now, coming from a business perspective, do you sure. think that he made the right decision to not sign and stay at home? Well... First and foremost, Nick's a good friend of mine, and I've, we've had this discussion, and we've been talking about it since he made the decision. I don't represent Nick, but had he asked me my opinion on it, I probably would have told him to do what he's doing. He's sticking to his guns. Um, he challenged the USATF. He had huge traction online, socially, as well in mass media. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if you've been paying attention to what happened recently, but Joel Greer admitted that staff at USATF was incompetent and that the, uh, the contract was written poorly essentially saying that what Nick was asking for, and he wasn't saying, I want to be wearing my Brooks gear on the track. I mean, he's allowed mm-hmm. to wear his Brooks shoes, his watch, as well as glasses. But what he wanted the access to was, hey, if I'm sitting in my hotel room having a coffee, I want to be able to wear my Brooks clothing, mm-hmm. uh, which is his primary sponsor. And I totally understand that from his point of view, as well as the agent's point of view. And from the business standpoint, he's being loyal to his sponsor. And I, I take my hat off to Nick and because I've spoken about it, and I said, hey, good job. I'm happy you chose what you did. You stuck to your guns, and you beat you beat the big dog. I mean, very few people are afraid to challenge them. And I mean, people are pointing, pointing fingers at Nick saying, you're not doing this right. I mean, you're the one that thinks this way. Well, I can tell you, Nick's not the only one that feels that way. He's one person speaking out for, I would probably say, three quarters of the American athletes. 
well, he's the only one that really has the the power of the clout that that has the balls to go forth and say, you know what, what you guys are doing is wrong. I mean, I want to have my relationship with my sponsor, and I can't have it be impeded by federation deals, right? Well, you know, you say that, and I, you know, my mind was blown that no yeah. doubt that there are uh, there are other people who are running for New Balance and for and for Brooks and and all those different companies down the states, but no one got behind him at all. Do you think that's a bunch of agents saying, you know, stay away from this one, just get your Well, it's a very experience. It's, it's super touchy no matter how you look at it. Um, at the end of the day, without Nike, athletics doesn't exist in North America nor in Europe. They invest so much money into it, not just the meets and the athletes, but also into the federation. I mean, we're lucky here in Canada to have Nike partner with Athletics Canada, just like they have in the United States. And without that money and investment from them, it's, it's tough to run the sport. Now, that being said, athletes are also entitled to have their own their own personal sponsors like Nick with with Brooks or we can who else can we throw under the bus here I'll say Charles with A6 um, or Alex Janest over at New Balance you're entitled to wear what you want on your own proper on your own personal time and that was more of the conflict for Nick was he was told he wasn't allowed to wear a Brooks t-shirt while he was having coffee at a, at a past uh, national team camp and to me as an agent I say okay I understand what you're saying I support it um, yes, the legislation needs to be changed between uh, the governing body for, with the athletes, and I think Nick succeeded in what he wanted to do. I mean, sure, he's left off the uh, the world team, but you know what? There's a bigger picture for him, and I'm sure it revolves around Rio. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think many people are just impressed that Nick got it together and ran so well at USA. You know, it does raise the question, could this happen in Canada? I mean, what does the apparel contract look like for our top athletes versus what it looks like in the U.S.? Oh, it'd be very similar. I mean, a Nike contract is a Nike contract, regardless of it's with Canada, USA, uh, I'm trying to think of British, British athletics. I mean, at national team events, you're wearing your Nike kits, whether it be the track suit, the podium wear. Um, I mean, there's a, a ton of things that, that you get access to when you become, when you make that first national team. You're wearing it. The only thing you can't, you know, the only thing you're allowed to wear on your own time is your, sorry, your own time on the, on the track is your training shoes, spikes. And watch, and those are allowed to be a competitor of Nike. I mean, that comes with the big investment that Nike does give the federations. Is hey, we're exclusive head to toe for national team events. Something I want to touch on briefly: this year has been almost like a never-ending stream of drug cheats being exposed and <laughs> perhaps overexposed. Uh, you know, obviously, yeah. it's an awful thing for the sport. But do you think that there's any impact on the actual number of people interested in the sport after another big name has been busted? Well, just before we start with that, it's only going to get worse before it gets better. I think the first step to the sport getting cleaner was with what just recently happened with Seb, with Seb Coe being elected new IWF president. Hmm. He has a zero tolerance for drug cheats. Um, I know in his magic, he had to talk briefly about um, a proposed jail time and, and fraud charges for those that test positive. Um, so I think we're going to see a big spin around right there to get off the top. Um do, do positive tests get people away from the sport? Of course they do. Do they ruin the image of the sport? Yes. Do sponsors pull out of the sport because of it? Of course they do. Um, essentially, what we're going to have to do in our sport, unfortunately, is to look at not a, a, not a, not a competing sport, but a similar sport like cycling. I mean, after Lance Armstrong, the sport had to find a brand new identity and come back and say, hey, we're clean. Yes, our top dog was dirty as well as many others, but we're making the right choices and the right or taking the right path to, to coming back as a cleaner sport that everyone can enjoy again. I think the recent numbers of the Tour de France were through the roof. 
uh, for viewership. So if athletics can even get a chunk of those numbers, I think we'd be in a much better spot. With an impressive roster of athletes, uh, your company, Sprint Management, represents uh, you know a lot of athletes heading to Worlds. Who are the who are going to be the standout athletes there that you represent that we should be watching for you know breakout performances and stuff? Well, the joy with World Championships are there, there's multiple rounds, so you can, might be the fastest person on the roster, but you might not necessarily make the final. And once you make the final, anything's possible. Um, one of the key athletes that I'm watching in my group is Luke Wellen Santos. In recent, just coming off of 44:56 at Pan Am's, I won the gold. Olympic silver medalist in 2012 and Olympic, or sorry, world championship bronze medalist in 2013. So in theory, yeah, he should be a top five contender. He's a medal threat in every race he goes to. Um, but you also can't discount some of the younger kids coming through, even the Canadian system here. You've got young Kamika Bingham, 11-13, she's run this year, and she makes the final. Who knows what can happen? It's a fast track. I mean, there's great, I mean, in our sprints right now in Canada, we're doing super well. I mean, regardless if they're part of our roster or not, you, you can't discount an Andre de Grasse right now. The kid's amazing, 100 and 200. He's a medal threat there, just as is Justin Warner. And a lot of people have thrown him under the bus saying he's not who he was before. But guess what? He ran his standards and he runs better with rounds. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone's kind of, everyone comes into terms when they're in the big stadium and the pressure's on. So um, I don't really discount anyone out. As long if they can get to the final, it's a success in its own. Um, someone like Chuck, that's his plan. He goes, Chris, I'm making the final, and if I make the final, I'm coming to Zurich. So uh, <laughs> Zurich is the first time in the league after it, and his mind's pretty much set on, I'm going to Zurich. So I said, you're going to have to run a, a PB. And he said, Chris, I'm ready to go 332 to 333. So we can do our job as agents or managers or whatever you want to call us. The coaches can do their job, as can the nutritionists. But at the end of the day, the pressure's on the athlete to perform when it really counts. So. Um, I try not to bet on any performances within our group. I just say, you know what, as long as everyone does the best they can, cross the finish line healthy, um, and we look forward to building towards Rio. That's the bigger picture at the end of the day. Well, I, just in my opinion here, I th- I think no matter what Chuck does uh, at World Championships, that guy's had one hell of a year. Yeah, have you heard what we've done? Because <laughs> a lot of people know how he, he, they saw him show up in the races, but they don't know what he did personally to make it happen. And, and that's a whole other discussion. I mean, I think it's, I told him, I said, out of all the athletes I've ever worked with, you have the biggest balls I've ever met. Um, the kid has, uh, I, I still don't know how he does some of it. I mean, he went over into Europe the first time with one meet confirmed, and it was a smaller one. And then overnight, we confirmed two bigger ones. And then we had the option to go into Oslo to run a B section of a 1500. Mm-hmm. And the day of the meet, I got the call saying he's been accepted into the Dream Mile, which is, to me, one of the best races in the world um, for that distance came back home and he said, Chris, I want to go back to Monaco. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it's going to be tough to get in. So I'm friends with the meet director. And anyways, long story short, Chuck decides to fly into Nice, land, and uh, with a little bit of persuasion, a few uh, a few nice words, they accepted him into the meet. So, I mean, he's taking risks that others won't. And I respect him a lot for doing it. And, you know, I would love to see other athletes say, you know what, I'm going to try and make this happen for myself and just go for it. I mean, he's a living proof of what believing in yourself can do and what you can achieve. I mean, I don't think anyone saw him running 334 uh, this year at all. Um, based on his indoor times, you wouldn't say, okay, he's going to drop a five-second PB. But he believed in himself. He put the work in. He got access to the right meets. At the end of the day, he's closing up the season regardless of what he runs at Worlds and if he gets a dessert with a 334-23 uh, PB, which to me is an Olympic medal in itself. Yeah, I mean, like as as far as track goes, it's been an amazing spring and summer for everyone really in this country. 
you know, if I yeah. have to ask you, uh, as you represent so many great Canadian athletes, you know, what do you think is driving this sudden spike in both interest and quality performances from our best best athletes? You know what I think it is, and, and this goes back to almost not the grassroots, but it's having Pan Ams this year in Toronto, a lot of people want to step up and run well. If you look at the women's 800, uh, Fiona Benson, we can start with her. I mean, she was running 207s, and all of a sudden she started dropping times. Shows, I mean, she didn't make the Pan Am team for deadline reasons, but she'll be at our Worlds. Or Melissa Bishop just made the deadline and ends up winning Pan Ams. So there, there's, there's so many things going into a pre-Olympic year that everyone's rising up saying, you know what, we don't want to just do well at Pan Ams. We want to do well at Worlds, and we want to do really well at, at Olympics. And all, yeah, you know, I commend all the Canadian athletes right now um, for really stepping up at Pan Ams. I think we're only going to see better things happen going into Worlds and Olympics. There's just this energy that hasn't been in the sport in a very long time. I mean, just surrounding, we'll say, Andre de Grasse, it's crazy. He's turned to a rock star and a household name overnight. The men's 4 by one team, the women's 4 by one team, the women's 800. I mean, there's so many quality events right now and quality athletes. I think going into 2016 that this country could do its best yet, um, best in history. And I think a lot of that goes around to, what goes around with not only the coaches and, and, and the athletes, but also to show what a great job the Federation has done by giving athletes access to new services that were never available in years past. And training camps and all and all these kind of things and it's great to see athletics kind of taking such a great initiative to say you know what we want to see our athletes compete well and, and they're taking the necessary steps to ensure that it does happen you know finally uh i don't mean to pump your tires here but sprint management yeah, sure. has been uh you know a fairly <laughs> integral part of our nation's track scene uh taking on some pretty huge endeavors thus far you know what can we expect in the next year from you guys we're having some fun um but we've got under our I'll call it portfolio of events right now, we've got the Edmonton or the Tracktown Classic. But right now we're ranked 23rd in the world and we should be in the top 30 at the end of the season once it does finish. So just that alone for us is, is a great meet to be associated with. We also uh, work close with Athletics Canada with the AC Indoor Championships. Uh, last year was our first year doing it and we did, we had some fun. We did put on a world record attempt in the 600 and then we also had the Celebrity 60, which was very well received by everyone. So we're looking to redo that again this year. And we've got a race coming up September 27th here in Montreal. It's a road race. All profits go to the Premier Foundation. So we're getting more and more involved in the event side of things. Um, I mean, it's, it's great to represent the athletes, and we have a lot of fun doing it and take a lot of pride. But at the same time, when you can build an event and be involved at every step of the way and you see the final result to say, hey, you know what? As a team, we accomplished, uh, we totally accomplished something great. Um, there's a great feeling there as well. So we're going to continue building out events. We're potentially looking at putting, a, a, we'll call it a world-class indoor meet in Montreal for 2016, 2017, hmm. as well as potential an outdoor meet here as well. It's just such a great legacy of sport in this city and so much support from the media that it just makes sense to put, put on a, a global meet here. So there's a lot of projects we have in the go. It's just really sitting down, hammering up the details and making it all work. So yeah, it's, it's a great time to be in, I'll say in Canada for sport, for track and we're doing our job just like the Federation is doing theirs. And if, as long as the athletes keep rolling, it's going to make everyone's job of selling sport a hell of a lot easier. Chris McCashew, he's a managing partner at Sprint Management, a firm that represents, well, pretty much everyone. Uh, you can find him <laughs> on Twitter at Sprint underscore MGMT. Uh, you can also check out their website, SprintManagement.ca. Thanks a lot for joining us today, Chris. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. You're listening to The Terminal Mile, available via tracky.ca as well as via iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can also find us on Twitter at The Terminal Mile.
Now, with all this talk of the biggest international athletics competition going down in Beijing, it should be mentioned that there's another athletic competition going on a little bit closer to home that will see a Canadian who poses a serious threat, not just for the win, but also a world record. Louis Kent is the current Beer Mile world record holder, and he'll be facing the best in the world at the World Beer Mile Classic in San Francisco. Welcome to the show, Louis. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, despite running quite a few beer miles at this point, this event will actually be something new for you, as it looks like there will be at least two athletes who will come very close to matching your time running in the same race. Now, given the fact that you've won a lot of these recent races quite handily, how do you think that will affect your run? Um, I definitely think it'll be interesting. Uh, just like in a usual race, it'll definitely push you when you have fast guys around you. But the difference in the beer mile is uh, when you're going into the zone and grabbing your beers, it's a little more hectic because you got to jostle around and get your way to find your beer. And it's also, it's not like a regular mile where if you get pushed a little bit too hard too early, you just fade a bit. In the beer mile, there's always that risk of puking, right? So a lot of people are predicting that it's going to get out super fast and a couple of the top guys are going to end up having to have a little penalty lap because it's going to get out too quick. Well, you know, I do have to ask about your confidence because on one hand, you're going in, you are the world record holder, but on the other hand, you know, this race is full of pioneers and the guys who are within a second view. What is your confidence going into this race? You know what? A couple people have told me, you know, I think this is your race to lose because you have the world record. But if you look at it, Josh Harris, the Australian guy who broke the record the same day as me, he's only 0.4 off. And then James Nielsen's only just over a second off. And there's a bunch of guys in the race. Like they just confirmed a 336, 1500 guy today is racing. And you've got a couple other sub four milers in there. My confidence level is definitely very high. Like I know I can run well and I can drink well. But there's four or five given, like on a given day, depending on who's feeling good. I think four or five different guys could win it. So I'm going in not too much pressure on myself, although everyone seems to want to put it on me that I should be winning the race. I definitely think I have a good shot at winning it. I'm just going to give it everything I got. Well, you're actually in San Francisco right now. Uh, you know, have you had a look at the venue yet? And do you think the conditions will be right for you to set a new world record? Um. Yeah, we actually just did. I just did my final tune-up workout today um, on the course. Just did a bunch of 400s on it. And uh, I actually ran it with Josh Harris, the Australian. I met him yesterday. So uh, it it's definitely interesting. So it's pretty much, I'd say it's about 80% road loop. And then just on one of the corners, you kind of cut across grass for about, I guess, 50-ish meters. But uh, it's, it's definitely not going to be as quick as a track. But I think... I think the time is going to be close to world record, but it's going to be, if the time isn't a world record, it's going to be worth a world record for sure. I think it'll be, everyone's ready to go. If it was on a track, I think everyone's ready to go low 450s right now. So even if the time doesn't reflect that, if the conditions are right, the wind is down, I think it could be really close. Now, what's really cool about this meet is that there's a team aspect to the race. Uh, with Canada sending, in my opinion, a fairly decent team, although minus Corey Gallagher, how do you think Canada's team stacks up against the rest? Um, I think going into the race, uh, without us having Corey, I think the U.S. definitely are uh, leading the way. They have four, Their fourth guy is a 5'11 guy. So they've got... Uh, Right now, they have James, who's 457, 505, 507, and 511. So they're definitely uh, the favorites going in. But we definitely have some depth with Jim. We have Jim Finlayson, who's the most decorated beer miler 
ever. So he's just he's just such a legend that everyone knows he shows up on race day. And then we've also got Phil and Jeff Mountjoy who are definitely good racers. So I think we've got a good shot at for the upset, but we're not the favorites going in right now. You know, there's been a, a lot of rumors about uh, the hidden aces of the Americans uh, that they think that they're hiding. You know, are they bluffing? Have you have you seen anything yet to uh, affirm all what the rumors are saying? Well, uh, we actually like uh, last we got in yesterday and we met uh, John Markle, who's one of the pioneers and guys uh, helping start up the race. And he really thinks a lot of these American guys have gone and run their times in time trial situations where there's nobody else fast around them, which I guess is true for all of us. But Phil and I and a lot of ours, and I know Jeff as well, run they run theirs. We all run ours in pretty group events. So uh, John really thinks that a couple of these American guys that are 5.0s are going to end up in the 5.30s once they get people around them and they're going to get too excited, go out too fast, and it's going to get to them. So... That's what I think they've they've they're all have run legit races. I've seen their videos, but I think there might be a little bit of choking by the U.S. on Saturday. Now, uh, on on a bit of a different question here, uh, you've mostly run with craft beers up to this point that are probably pretty tough to source down in the states. Uh, you know, what are you planning on drinking for this race? I actually uh, flew down with twelve of my Amsterdam blonde beers. The uh, we heard from, so Josh Harris, the Australian, flew over with eight of his, he drinks Cooper 62, it's kind of the same deal, it's just one of his local beers from Australia, and he didn't, he just wrapped them up in shirts and stuff in his bag, and when he got here, he messaged us saying, oh, five of them have either smashed or lost their carbonation, like they lost the seal, so I looked into the internet before I left and said, how can I, how can I make this work, so I, I bubble wrapped and Ziploc bagged all my beers, and they made it here safely, so I've got 12, so that's great. So over the next couple nights, I can use them and kind of practice with them. Now, uh, out of curiosity, um, you know, what are you drinking when you're not running beer miles? Um, I actually uh, typically drink, well, it all depends. If I'm drinking like quite a bit, then I'll drink old Milwaukee just because it's cheap and, you know, a student budget. But uh, Innocent Gun is just like a Scottish, it's an oak-aged beer. That's definitely one of my favorite beers. As you've mentioned uh, before, the charm of the beer mile is that you have to be both a good runner as well as a good drinker. Uh, now, if you were to take any time off your best, you know, where is that time going to come from? Is it going to come from your drinking or is it going to come from your mile time? Um, I think between all four beers, I maybe only have about one second left. If every The tough thing is to have four drinks that you have the angle perfect, you crack it open, the breathing is perfect. It's really tough to have four in a row. So on any given day, it's going to be plus or minus kind of half a second sort of deal. But the only real time to shave now is on the runs. So those middle runs is really where it slows down. Typically, it gets out at a pretty good lap. Those middle two, it slows down and then it picks up again. So those middle two, I think the race on Saturdays can be won or lost on the third lap. Since you've broken the world record a couple weeks ago, you've gotten a ton of attention from big media publications. You know, looking back to when you started your video series, Road to Sub 5, did you ever foresee yourself making it to the likes of, say, ESPN? No, honestly, that was, that was, uh, we just started it up for fun. We'd know it'd be a good thing. And uh, Phil had just gotten a GoPro for Christmas, so he wanted to kind of start editing videos and stuff. So we thought, you know what, we're not taking racing to, 
this summer too seriously. We'll start up a little video thing, post it on Tracky, have all our friends see it. We never expected. I honestly thought maybe by the end of the summer I'd break five minutes just barely, but I never expected to be the world record holder, and the likes of ESPN writing an article on me was definitely not in my mind. You know, uh, I mentioned it, and you just kind of explained it a little bit briefly, but maybe going into a little more depth uh, with the Road to Sub 5, what gave you the idea to pursue the record and uh, maybe document it via film? Um, At first, so I was, my personal best was f- 5.19 on video and like 5.13 off video when we started that. And I knew, I knew my run laps, I definitely could cut down and get close to five minutes. So I thought, you know what, only one guy's broken five minutes. If I could be the second guy to do it, it'd be good. And then I also thought, you know, everyone's think, everyone thinks that, or even not many people know what's inside the training for the beer mile. And I kind of, I actually, that was this really the start of me training for the beer mile. So I just looked up a bunch of stuff online, how professional eaters train their stomachs and stuff like that. And I just thought it'd be good fun. All the, all my friends that have seen it thought it was a good, a good video series and, we just thought it'd be a lot of fun to record it and post it out there and have everyone see it. So the real, I didn't think by the end of that series in April, I would get under five, but the closer I could get, the better. Now this one's uh, this one's more for the London residents who are listening right now, but the videos yeah. that I've watched, uh, you've been running at a certain Catholic school with what looks like a cinder track. Now, I happen to know that there's a lot of a lot better tracks in London. Why are you going with that same track every single time? So, uh, all the beer miles we've ever done in London have been at that cinder track because it's right across. It's only a five minute or three or four minute jog from our place where I stay in London. So, it's just really easy to get across there. And uh, a big part of that is that if everyone's partaking in the actual beer mile, then we don't want people drinking and driving. So it's really easy for us just to walk from our house. And honestly, unless it's a true record attempt, the cinder track maybe only costs you two, three seconds a lap. So it's not too big of a deal. And when I was setting all my personal bests on that track anyways, I was just comparing it to the last one on that track. So I knew when I would step onto an actual track and spikes, I could definitely shave six, seven seconds off. The only one we did different was uh, when we hosted the Ontario Beer Mile Championships. We got on an actual surface track for that one because we knew we wanted some fast times and everyone wanted to run well. Well, the uh, the whole not drinking and driving thing is uh, is pretty key and uh, definitely a lot of respect there. Uh, you j- actually just joined Twitter. Uh, perhaps you can throw out your handle and uh, any other way people uh, you know can get in touch with you and be sure to follow along with you uh, this weekend. Yeah, for sure. So uh, my Twitter handle is at Lewis Kent Myler. So just my name, then M-I-L-E-R. I'll definitely be posting. I just uh, threw up a photo of the view from the race start when I was at the course today, which is a pretty nice view of the San Francisco uh, skyline as well as the Bay Bridge. So yeah, if you guys want to give me a follow, I'll probably be posting it once every couple days and definitely while I'm down here. And it won't always just be beer mile stuff. When it's not beer mile season, I'll be posting about my regular training and everyday life stuff. So Hopefully you guys get a good follow out of it. Well, just one more question, uh, you know, about what's coming up in the future. I believe you still have a couple more years of eligibility. Uh, what's up for this fall and the winter? Yeah, so I'm actually only going to my third year of eligibility. I didn't uh, compete my first year, so I'm going to my fourth year now. Um, I will be competing at uh, for the University of Western Ontario this cross-country season and uh, this indoor track season. So hoping to set some good PBs, seeing 
I don't know. I've never been much of a cross guy and never really put in the miles for it. So I definitely put in the work. Oh, I've been putting in the work over the last couple of weeks, more training for cross country than for this beer mile. So hopefully set, hopefully setting some eight K and 10 K PBs this, uh, season. And then indoors jump in some 15s. Maybe we'll see how everything's going. Maybe some three Ks and jump on the four by eight. Well, from one purple pony to another, uh, we really hope that you do well in cross country and uh, both on the indoor track this year as well. Uh, he is Lewis Kent. He is the current Beer Mile world record holder, and he'll be racing at the World Classic happening in San Francisco this weekend. Be sure to follow along with that. Thanks a lot for being on the show this week, Lewis. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Terminal Mile. Big thanks to our guests, Chris McCashew and Lewis Kent, and to Tracky for their ongoing support. Best of luck to all the Canadians repping us on the big stage in the coming weeks. We're cheering for you whether you're at the Beer Mile World Classic or at the World Championships. You can find us on the web via Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, and of course, Tracky.ca, as well on Twitter, at the Terminal Mile. Thanks a lot for listening. This has been the Terminal Mile, a Tracky Radio production.